Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico, and just wanted to welcome you all. Um, it's great to be here and worshiping God together. And we are continuing to work through the book of James. And if you remember back to kind of the very beginning, chapter one, the, the beginning of chapter one, one of the main points of James is he's trying to train us as disciples of Christ. And that, for him, has less to do with kind of like an intellectual knowledge and much more to do with a practical knowledge. So putting knowledge into your life, into action. And today we're going to look at one of the, um, one of the most strongest points that he makes in that kind of theme. And that is um, that we have to live out our faith. So faith is for living. Faith is for living. Um, but what it's going to cause us to do and what he intends for it to do is to get us to question our faith. And that's something that is um, a little bit risky to start questioning your faith, to start doubting your faith, maybe. But in the way that James intends it, it's actually really good because here's what he wants. He wants, he wants all of us and the people he's writing to to be sure that they have true faith, that they have authentic faith. Because he imagines a scenario in which somebody thinks that they are believing, that they are trusting. Somebody thinks that they are a Christian, but they're not. Because they don't live it. And James knows that that type of faith is perilous. It has eternal consequences. You could get to the end of your life thinking one thing, but then realizing when it's too late that what you thought was real was actually counterfeit, was fake. And so this is, um, this is a little bit heavy because it kind of pushes us into that thought process. It pushes us to kind of look at ourselves and say, am I actually believing this in a way that lines up with what God wants, with what God says. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we're in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And we'll just get right into it this morning. And this is going to be all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 26. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Please pray with me. Father, we, we read this and um, we probably have different reactions to it. This letter has a um, somewhat controversial history because it says so strongly something that that Jesus emphasized. And that is that we can't just think that if we say the right words or believe in our heads the right things, that that's sufficient. Lord, you are God of our entire lives, our entire beings. And so we need to look at ourselves to see if we have truly received the type of faith that penetrates to the deepest desires of our hearts and transforms every part of our lives. God, we need your help to do that. We need, um, we need courage to do that. We need honesty to do that. We need to, um, for a minute, just put our hearts and our minds at ease, not try to justify ourselves, not try to argue with you, but just to receive from you this morning. So we ask that you would be here with us to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, part of our service today is going to be sending off Jason and Christy Connor. And so I thought I would start with a little bit of an airplane illustration for you guys, because I feel like it's expected, right? So imagine this scenario. The, the destination of your dreams, it's probably different for everybody. Um, and let's just say it's really hard for you to get there. Like, you can't imagine a situation where, you're, where, you're, where, where you will ever be able to visit that place. It's just too expensive, cost prohibitive. And then you receive a ticket for a flight to that destination. So you have the ticket, and you're thrilled. And so you just go home, and you just look at the ticket. And let's say the departure date is the 28th of February, and the 28th of February comes and it goes, and you're sitting there in your living room looking at the ticket. What good is that ticket? Is it any good? The flight's left. Like, you're just looking at that ticket now, and it does you no good. It's just a piece of paper that is going to go out with the recycling. This is the type of statement that James is going to make about faith and works. He's saying, like, the human heart is so deceptive that we try and separate these two things. We try and separate kind of like an intellectual faith and then, okay, what we do and how we live. But he's saying, how absurd is that? How absurd is it to receive something that has that much value and that much worth and then just sit on it? Nobody does that. We wouldn't do that. When you truly believe something can make your life better, when you truly 
believe something can bring you joy, you orient your life around it, don't you? You start planning. You're like, oh, the flight is on the 28th of February, so I need a ride to the airport. I need to ask time off for work. I need to pack. And then you even start thinking about the destination. You say, it's not just that, but I get to explore this place. So you start making plans. You start doing some research. You start orienting your life, what you do with your body, around what has been given to you. And this is exactly how the Christian faith is supposed to work. When you realize the gift that you've been given, it totally reorients your life. And then you start living in accordance with that. And we'll talk about some of the ways that that happens. And, um, but first, we have to kind of look at the example that James gives, because he gives a similar example, but it's just a little bit more powerful. It's a little bit more emotionally charged. It's similar to last week when we were talking about the rich person and the poor person who come into the congregation and how wicked it would be to just ignore or put the poor person in kind of a position of shame and the rich person to elevate them, to show them preference. Well, it's the same with this example. He says, what good is it if somebody says that he has faith but doesn't have works? Well, it's about as good as this. If you see someone in this church, people that belong here, who you know, and they're destitute, they haven't eaten in a couple days, they are basically getting clothes out of dumpsters to wear. And you see them, and you see them at church, maybe. And you say, the Lord be with you. Be filled and warm. And then you just go on about your business. How wicked is that? Does that in any way align with the type of faith that you say that you have? This rhetorical question and this rhetorical scenario that James is giving is, of course it doesn't. And so if you can't even extend the smallest bit of kindness to somebody that you claim to be in a family with, that you claim to believe the same things along with, you claim that Christ's blood has united you to that person, and you insult them by saying, like, yeah, why don't you, you should go eat. You look hungry. It's like, you don't have faith. That kind of, that kind of faith is completely useless. It's dead. It is not the faith of the Christian faith. It's false faith. So faith without works is completely dead. You have to have that correspondence in order for it to be the type of faith that the Bible talks about. And he goes on, and he kind of imagines this scenario, and this is what happens. He, like, this is brilliant, because this is what happens in the human heart, and we do this we want to separate these two things. We want to pull them apart. And it happens in two different ways. And you see both of those. So this, this kind of um, person, <laughs> he offers this hypothetical kind of objection. He says, wait, hold on. Hold on, James. You have faith, but I have works, right? Like, this is how the, the body works. It's like one person's given one gift, another person's given another gift. So you're the one that believes. I'm the one that does. And that's how it works. Like, it doesn't need to be joined together like that. And he, he says, it's, it's just super practical for him. He says, okay, you say that you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith. How do you do that? How do you show somebody something that abstract? It's not, it's not provable. It's not falsifiable. You're just, are we, we'll just take your word, I guess, right? And this, when we have these extreme examples, it really irritates us when we, when we meet people like this. When we meet people who say that they are Christians who have taken on the name of Jesus, but then they live in reprehensible ways, in repulsive ways. It drives us crazy. But our own hearts want to do this. We, our own hearts want to either live by a set of rules and not worry about what we believe and not think about it too much. Let's just do a bunch of good things without considering it. Or we just think that we're brains on sticks. It's like what really matters is what we believe and having all the right answers on the doctrine test. And saying that is not how this works. You have to show your faith by your life. Faith is for living. It's to live it out. So he makes that point. Like, you can't show a faith, a faith that you don't live out. It's not provable. It's just vapid. It's nothing. It'll die with you. As soon as your brain stops working, that faith is gone. But me, I will show my faith by my works. You will see it as I live it out. You will know that I believe it because you see it costing me something. You see it, you see me aligning my destiny to it. So if we're using our traveling metaphor, James is saying, okay, well, I guess you're just going to fly yourself to that destination, which is going to be problematic because you're not a bird. But you're going to see me getting on that plane. You're going to see me taking my faith and actually taking steps that align with my trust in it. And that's what you're going to see. And then he kind of hits it the other side. He says, okay, so that was kind of a, um, a targeted, you know, criticism of those of us who just want like a list that we can follow, and then we start to take pride and find our own righteousness in our following of the, that list, that's living according to works without faith. But there's others of us, and this is more where I am. And so this, is, this hit me this week. And he says, okay, so now let's talk about belief that's abstracted from works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, this is the most basic, fundamental, important thing for Jewish people to confess about who God is. It's the Shema. Our God is one. And he is Lord over everything. There's one God who's supreme over this universe. And it's our God. God is one. He says, okay, that's a good thing to believe. You have partners in other people who believe that, and they're the demons. They say the same thing, and guess what? They know it in deeper and more profound ways than you know it. The demons have been exposed to who God is a lot longer than you. 
And at least they shudder when they say it. It's a little snipe. He says, you're saying that, but it's without any understanding of how that plays into reality because your life does not reflect it. So the people that he's addressing with this is, are the people who just want to know a lot about God. And so they study their Bibles, they read theology, they have all the right answers. And I've noticed this, and this was something that um, in seminary our professors warned us about. They, they said that um, going to seminary will make you a much better sinner because you will be tempted in this way. You'll be tempted with your own arrogance, your own pride of knowledge that never gets put into practice. You'll inflate your head, but your heart will shrivel. And it'll make you a terrible sinner. And so those of us who find our righteousness in what we believe, but then we don't actually live according to it, we're in some ways worse than the demons because we don't even know that that faith is useless. And so thankfully, the, the next part of this is showing us what it actually looks like to have true faith. What does it mean that faith is for living? And he gives us these two examples. So starting in verse 21, he starts with Abraham. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Um, justified by works... I don't think James knows that we're Protestants here. <laughs> we're not justified by works. We're justified by faith, right? It's one of the solas of the Reformation. We are justified by, not only by faith, we are justified by faith alone. We are justified by faith apart from adding works to it. Faith is sufficient for our justification. Here's what James is doing. Very intentionally, he's saying... Yes, I agree with you, but what kind of faith? You're justified by faith, and that faith is alone what justifies you, but it's faith that is never alone. It's faith that is lived out through a life. It's faith that gets put into practice. It's faith that costs you something. It's faith that sees there are consequences to believing this, and I'm good with that because I trust Jesus. And that's what Abraham had to do, wasn't it? Abraham, through his life, he, he had already trusted God with a lot, hadn't he? God told him, he came to him, and he's like, hey, Abraham, you got, you got it pretty good here. You're settled here. You've got a lot of things. You've made a good life for yourself. Leave it all behind. Go, and I'll show you the place where I want you to go. Like, okay, what do I get out of it? Your descendants will be a great blessing one day. And Abraham trusted him. And then God gave him another promise. He said, I will give you a son. And through that son, you're going to have many children. And that's how I'm going to bring out the blessing that I'm talking about. And Abraham was like, God, you don't understand. I'm old and my wife is old. And so he was waiting for God, waiting for God, and then he was like, hmm, maybe God means another person can be my wife, and we'll do it that way. So he had Ishmael. God said, no, trust me. 
I'm going to provide you a son. And he did. He provided Isaac. And then, years later, after Abraham's made many other silly mistakes, God comes to him and he says, yeah, that son Isaac, go and sacrifice him. Okay, but this is what I've been waiting for. My lineage, my reputation, my destiny is now attached to my son, and you're taking that away from me. So Abraham had to align his life with what he believed, and it took him his entire life to do. He had to get to the point of raising the knife over his son. And then God said, hold on. Now you believe. Now you trust me. Now you have faith in the way that I wanted to work it into you. Faith that makes you the father of faith. In that way, Abraham's faith, his trust in God, right? That's essentially what faith is. It's not just knowing God. It's not just agreeing that God is God, but it's trusting God. It was fulfilled, and it was working along with what he was doing. Verse 22, faith was active along with his works. They're not separated. They're the same. They're going together. It's not like faith over here and works over here. No, it's faith that's demonstrated by works. And his faith was completed by his works. God knew the whole time that Abraham would trust him, but Abraham didn't know that. Abraham didn't know that experientially. He might have been able to say, oh yeah, I'll trust God with anything. But until that moment where something flipped in him, where he was going to obey God even though it was going to take away his most precious thing, only then did Abraham really know that he trusted God, that he had faith in that way. So it was completed His faith was completed by what he did. And then again, to drive it it home, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. To reemphasize that, he says, that doesn't happen apart from what he did. Abraham doesn't understand that he's a friend of God apart from living that in his life, putting that into practice. And so he says... Again, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's not, it's not a wordplay on the solas, right? Like he's writing this in a different language, <laughs> but it seems like that. But what it's doing is it's putting, it's bringing it to a point, saying faith is never alone. Real faith is never alone. And if you have faith, but it's separated from anything that you do, you don't have faith. It's dead. You don't have it. And then he gives us another example. So we have Abraham who's been walking with God. He's been chosen by God, walking with God for a long time. We see this kind of principle of like, yeah, God's going to kind of refine our faith and give us testing of our faith throughout our whole life. And then we see Rahab. Rahab is kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum. She, she's not one of Israel right? She's in Jericho. She's a prostitute, no less. But as 
Israel is going into the promised land, and they're kind of checking things out. They send spies ahead, and they go into her house. And if you remember the story, it's in Judges 2. Joshua 2, sorry, Joshua 2. Rahab's like, I've heard of this God, and I know what happens. He is Lord of hosts. He is the Lord that controls the heavenly armies, and they destroy those in opposition. And so Rahab says, I want to be spared. I don't want to be destroyed. And so she does something. She saves the spies, right? They get wind that there are spies in the land, and so they come, and they know that they're there, and Rahab hides them and then sends the people off chasing a ghost. They went that way, <laughs> which is just like this, this tiny, messy faith of a prostitute is enough to attach her to the people of God. You know, she, it's messy. She's lying. She's breaking one of the commandments. It, one of the first things that she, do, she, that she does. But she believes that God can do what he says. And she takes great risk. This is a huge risk. It's risking both ways. It's risking that, A, that the Israelites will be true to their word, that she and her family won't be destroyed, and... She's risking that if she gets discovered as somebody who's hiding, she's dead. She's risking her life on this. This is not just something that's academic. Faith and works go together. It's for living. And ultimately, what Rahab and Abraham show us is they point us to the object of our faith. We haven't talked about that yet. They point us to the object of our faith because they are aligned in really interesting ways in your Bible. I, I was like, I was reading this and I was like, what? Rahab? That seems random. Abraham made sense, like father of faith, okay. Rahab? That seems random. And then I remember the genealogy in Matthew 1, who shows up, Abraham and then Rahab. It's the same family, same line. They lead to Christ. And then I remembered another part of your Bibles in Hebrews. In verse 17, again, this makes sense. The author of Hebrews is kind of going through all of these faithful people in Scripture and kind of using it to inspire the, the Hebrews to faithfulness and to continue to persevere in the face of trials. And so the author says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau, etc. And then in verse 31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So now, here's the importance, guys. Do you see that? If Rahab had not acted on her belief, there's no Jesus. It doesn't produce the incarnate son. God moves heaven and earth 
and uses our lives to redeem real people. This is pointing to the faith giver. And that's where Hebrews ends up. Verse tw- chapter 12, first two verses. I'll put it up there on the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. James is intentionally leading us on this connection of Abraham and Rahab because he wants us to remind ourselves of who we have faith in. And this is, this is something that is so beautiful. We ultimately have faith in Jesus because he authored our faith. He's the one who gave us the ticket. He's the one who gave us the ticket. And he is the plane. And he is the destination. He wants us, this is an invitation into faithful living. It's an invitation into that kind of richness. And the author of Hebrews tells us exactly how to do it. Lay aside every sin, every weight that clings so closely, every temptation that you have to disobey or to refuse to obey, which is just a different kind of disobedience. Lay it aside. You have all of this proof. And as you do that, look to Jesus. Because not only did he give us the ticket, again, he's the perfecter of that faith. He's with us. He doesn't abandon us. Back to James. The very end of this passage. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Our faith is in the resurrection. It's in in a guy who came back to life. That is relevant for every life situation that you're in. If God can raise you from the dead because he has risen Christ from the dead, then nothing else can be taken from you. Everything is possible with that kind of faith. Everything is possible with that kind of faith. And that faith comes only through the Spirit. It doesn't come through the checklist. It doesn't come through our efforts. It comes through the Spirit being given to us. It's given to us by Christ that we should live in Christ. Faith is for living. And so I want to ask you guys a couple things as we, as we wrap up. I know that... Um, This happens regularly, and sometimes because we don't, it makes us uncomfortable maybe, or we just are tired, (laughs) we like to kind of like push this off. But I know because I've experienced this, and I experience it regularly, like there is something right now that God is asking of you. Maybe it's something that, um, it's a sin that has just been persistent, and you haven't been able to figure it out, and you're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to get yourself right before you 
bring anyone else into it, before you talk about it. And it's just crushing you. And God's asking that of you, saying, no, 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 trust me. You believe in the resurrection of Jesus, remember? Don't you think I can raise this from the dead? Or maybe it's something that he's asking you to give or give up. Maybe it's attached to a job. Maybe it's attached to a relationship. Maybe it's attached to your family. I know for me, it's a lot of times, it's kind of puts me into confrontation with a thing that I, it's like almost my, my worst nightmare or the thing that I value the most. And so it might be like a confrontation that you need to have, that God is saying, hey, I want to use you in this way. You're like, hmm, find a different way to do it. This is a time where you actually get to see and push into this promise that faith is completed by doing that. And that you have the spirit with you and in you to help you. And you have a long history of people, a whole family that has lived like that. And you know what is great about that, um, that chapter in Hebrews? is All those people are a mess. This is not perfect. This doesn't get worked out perfectly. So don't, don't think, oh, because I haven't done this perfectly, I must not be a Christian. No, that's not it. But you know what Christians don't do? Is they don't give up. All of these people persevered, and they did that in patience, trusting that God would deliver what he had promised. And so look to them, but then most importantly, just do what Hebrews tells you, look to the founder and perfecter of your faith. Because just like Abraham was asked to trust God by being willing to sacrifice Isaac, we are trusting a God who wasn't only willing to sacrifice his son, but who actually did. He didn't require that of Abraham. But we put our lives in the hands of a God who gave everything for us and who made the way through Jesus. So we can trust him. Your faith is for living. Live it out. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you um, that we get to reflect on this, that just this simple passage that is about so many things is really ultimately about your faithfulness. Though every one of us is a liar, Lord, though every one of us is a hypocrite, you remain true. And so we can come back to you. We can turn back to you. And we can continue to strive in imitation of our Savior, knowing that he will never let us go, that he will bring us to our final destination. And so, Lord, I ask that you would, um, that you would give us just grace upon grace as we live that out imperfectly. But, Lord, also give us courage. Give us conviction to truly live it out, to take steps, steps that we haven't been willing to take before, that we would risk things that we don't want to risk, because we know that you are true to your promises. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.